Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Stephanie Vine-Halatke to discuss her new book, Deploying Feminism, The Role of Gender in NATO Military Operations, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. In 1995, the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing launched the Women, Peace, and Security, or WPS, agenda. Successive UN Security Council resolutions highlighted the need to include more women in peace processes, the perpetuation of gender-based violence during war, the underrepresentation of women as peacekeepers, and the need for greater diversity at all levels of governance to respond to international security challenges. These norms seem clear, feminist, and ambitious. Dr. Stephanie von Hlotsky's new book, Deploying Feminism, The Role of Gender in NATO Military Operation, argues that these WPS norms were distorted during the implementation process. NATO, a predominantly male organization, experimented with gender mainstreaming, but instead of serving general equality goals, the women, peace, and security norms served operational effectiveness. Women on the battlefield in Afghanistan and Iraq were seen as a military asset because they were able to interact with local women and children or more effectively get information from male inhabitants. The ambitious women, peace and security global norms ultimately left military culture untouched. Deploying feminism provides a detailed account of the changes made within the NATO military due to the WPS norms using comparative case studies, interviews and feminist IR scholarship, Dr. Von Hlotke examines why norm distortion occurs and how the military carries it out. She recommends recommends ways that the military might implement gender norms without distortion. Dr. Stephanie von Hlotke is an associate professor of political studies and Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security, and the Armed Forces at Queen's University. She is also fellow at the Center for International and Defense Policy. 
She's the author of American Allies in Times of War, The Great Asymmetry, and co-editor of Going to War, Trends in Military Interventions. And I am delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. Hi, Susan. So, hi. So, Stephanie, let's start uh, with this sort of key moment in 1995, uh, during this global meeting, and just tell us how it is that these new norms, this WPS um, agenda begins. Thanks uh, so much, Susan, for having me on the podcast. It's a thrill to be discussing the book with you and with your audience. And you're right to be bringing us back to the mid-1990s, because I would argue this is really a crucial time for the development of these norms. And uh, one of the main reasons for that, as you correctly pointed out, is this UN conference in Beijing that was really meant to focus on, on women. And as part of those conversations on women's empowerment, there were conversations started about uh, the role of women in international security and the fact that uh, their role and perspectives have been underrepresented, even silenced in those conversations. So that platform was a turning point for the development of norms on women, peace, and security. And then the agenda further crystallized in the year 2000 uh, with the adoption of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And then from that moment on, you have a series of follow-on resolutions that created a normative agenda. And governments, international organizations latched on to that UN-sanctioned agenda and then adapted it to suit their own purpose. So NATO uh, took a bit of time to get there, but certainly in 2007, NATO adopted its own policy on women, peace, and security to uh, chart forward uh, an implementation plan for that UN-based agenda. Okay, so all of that sounds actually like, in theory, uh, a sort of uh, encouraging trajectory. Um, what did you actually found happened um, in that process and beyond in terms of where NATO is today? Mm -hmm. No, that's a good question. And I don't want to be all doom and gloom either in in this conversation, because I I think it's important to recognize that in the broader historical context of NATO's existence, NATO is a military alliance that was founded in 1949. Its experience with something like the Women, Peace and Security agenda is still very new. And when we're talking about norms, We're talking about new ideas, new practices, and for any bureaucracy, for any organization, it's a challenge to pivot. It's a challenge to to change those day-to-day practices. So I want to be realistic also in my assessment of how NATO has implemented women, peace, and security, and uh, provide a bit of nuance for how that's been done as well. So when NATO approached women, peace, and security for the first time. It was around 2007, as I mentioned. And on the military side of the house, there were corresponding military directives. And that took a couple of years to roll those out. So really for NATO, you've got um, civilian guidance, and then you've got military directives that are all meant to further women, peace, and security norms, the focus on the promotion of gender equality, and understand how that should shape all of NATO's work from 
their own internal policies to the way that they carry out military operations and activities um, in different regions. And so the initial phase was really a phase of crafting that narrative in a coherent and intelligible way in the NATO context and in NATO parlance. And you needed champions to do that. And so a secretary general at at NATO and the key um, permanent representatives of all of the member states had a a big role to play in that diplomacy. Uh, Really core to that period, too, uh, was the relationship that NATO has with its partners. Because what's interesting about the Women, Peace and Security agenda is that, yes, it's uh, a NATO-based agenda, and member states had a huge hand in shaping that, but they also reached out to their partners, so those who don't have formal membership within NATO, but who are still quite active in terms of participating in NATO activities. And so it was a really large group that took part in this conversation around women, peace, and security at that time, and it gave political and diplomatic momentum to the agenda. For someone who was working on NATO at the time, that's what really piqued my attention because NATO is a military alliance. The conversations on NATO, and that's reflected in both the scholarly conversations and more policy-focused conversations, military conversations. They're on military operations, so multinational military operations. They are focused on burden sharing. And of course, those conversations have not disappeared at all, front and center, especially right now. And questions of collective defense and and deterrence. A lot of conversations around that time about the expansion of the membership of NATO, about uh, the relationship between member states and partnerships on how to think more broadly about security goals. But women, peace and security was really not part of those core discussions. So that's what attracted me to write a book about this. So I was at the time doing interviews at NATO in the headquarters for a project on deterrence and extended nuclear deterrence in in particular. And I was noticing these, these changes and I was intrigued because you don't think of a military alliance as the... champion you would think of necessarily uh, for pushing forward norms on women, peace and security, and and certainly not uh, using feminist language. And that's what's interesting about the the women, peace and security agenda. It's emerged from feminist activism, but the way it's implemented takes on very different forms, including in the NATO context. So at the time of the adoption of the women, peace and security policy in 2007, uh, you have you know, very slow beginnings. It's basically putting things in writing, socializing these ideas in the NATO context, uh, really through the political means and the North Atlantic Council, the way that the Secretary General portrays the alliance's work, and then you know, across all the nooks and crannies of the organization, from you know, the international staff to uh, the Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers Europe in Mons, uh, Belgium, uh, all the way down to, to the tactical uh, level and military missions. So you can appreciate how complex that work is when you're introducing a new norm and then expecting it to be implemented across that big NATO military machine. So um, let's stop for a minute, just because you sort of mentioning your research, and this is probably a good time to um, 
help listeners understand how you did this research and what kind of a researcher you are. So you were doing this other project and you started to sort of hear this and think about this. So to write this book, you did a lot of interviews, you looked at a lot of documents. So talk a little bit about what kind of, and and you used a lot of theory. So just talk sort of about the methodology that you use, like how much of how much of this is IR theory, how much of this is is interviews, and maybe some of the challenges of doing such interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. I think a, a challenge that a lot of people like me face when you want to do interviews in operating environments or with military stakeholders, there are very important considerations that come to mind, both in terms of Uh, the ethics by which we're bound, but also negotiating your access to these fields of research. And I'll say that uh, I'm extremely privileged here in in my context at Queen's University because Queen's University happens to be in Kingston, Ontario, where there is a military college, the Royal Military College. There is a large military base there is a, an army staff college. So there are all these uh, military institutions and networks right here in Kingston that allow me to you know, get some preliminary feedback on my research, establish contacts in the, in the military realm, and that definitely opens doors and also um, improves your military literacy. And I can't stress this point enough, as important as it is to get the literature review right and your research design right and a book like this when you're out in the field doing interviews and engaging in participant observation with military stakeholders you need to know rank you need to know the way that uh, military uh, stakeholders are interacting with civilian stakeholders on the ground and at different levels in the organizations from the strategic operational to the tactical level so those relationships that I have in Kingston, for instance, and, and beyond in my community, I'm also an honorary lieutenant colonel for a, a reserve infantry unit. It's helped a lot with that, about getting comfortable with that space, about establishing a network so that, you know, when it comes to doing the interviews and doing the field work, you know the networks really well, you know who to ask, you know the proper channels, uh, and uh, you build a plan around that. It also was immensely useful in terms of the considerations around safety and, and security, so that was particularly acute for the field work in Iraq. And so being able to do some training for uh, going to what would be called a hazardous environment uh, was also important. And when I think about how we prepare our students, PhD students or uh, emerging scholars, you know, we have to talk ethics, but we also have to talk about these other safety and security considerations uh, that go together with, with this kind of work. Pivoting to the the theory and the literature, uh, as you mentioned before, I was doing some work on on deterrence and uh, my previous book with Oxford University Press was on American allies in times of war. So I I was in a completely different space in terms of theoretical inclination and the literature was quite realist or neo-realist in in IR parlance and international relations language. But for this book, I 
really needed to dive into the feminist literature in international relations. And what you see in that literature is that the way that women, peace and security as a topic is approached is through a very critical lens. Yes, there's an acknowledgement of that historical trajectory of strong activism from women's groups and feminist activists, civil society organizations to put women, peace and security on the agenda. But then the way these norms get interpreted and you know, very hierarchical and masculine context sort of uh, changes the meaning of those norms. And there's this critique you see in the feminist international relations literature uh, that says that the agenda has been militarized and co-opted even by international organizations, by governments, by military institutions. And so acknowledging that uh, and definitely seeing evidence for that, I was really interested in explaining why and how that's done. And to do that part, you need to draw from other bodies of scholarship, like civil-military relations. Those civil-military interactions are actually really important for uh, the ways that an organization like NATO will interpret norms, the way it will give meaning to those norms, the way those meanings will then translate into day-to-day practices on the military side and more on the policy side. So that body of literature was really important. And then, you know, the traditional IR literature was really important too. You know that that uh, realist and and liberal understandings of alliance politics, for instance, in terms of how norms take root within institutions and have this stickiness, uh, but also how different member states compete. Uh, for certain agenda items, right, in a NATO context. So certain countries will certainly lead on women, peace, and security versus other states will maybe be a bit more resistant. And I don't have to name and shame or uh, single out any countries. I think it's pretty easy to think about the roster of NATO member states and anticipate that some member states will be more supportive and other member states, even though they've signed on to NATO adopting a WS policy uh, will be a bit more resistant in the day-to-day or how far-reaching those changes will be. So I found uh, really that my my book spoke to a lot of different segments of the literature. And the new aspect for me was really delving into that feminist international relations uh, literature, understanding that, yes, there is a certain level of the militarization of the agenda, but it's important to understand then really how NATO functions as an organization to uh, better track how these norms have been interpreted and, and carried out. And what I'll say too is that, you know, when you're doing your preliminary literature review on something like women, peace and security in the NATO context, the bulk of what's been written on this topic is from a feminist international relations lens. There are a few exceptions. Uh, and certainly in the gray literature or from the literature that comes more from policy circles and think tanks, that's the case. And then uh, with an article I I co-authored with Heidi Hart, who's a professor at uh, UC Irvine, we co-authored an article uh, that looked at some civil military differences in the implementation of women, peace and security. and, And that also took kind of a different theoretical framework, one which would be a bit more associated with mainstream international relations scholarship. So that's the uh, theory bit. Uh, And 
when it came to the actual field work and, and the interviews, uh, there were about 100 interviews conducted at uh, all levels. So definitely in the headquarters in Brussels, Belgium, uh, in Mons at uh, SHAPE, then the Joint Forces Commands in Brunsum and Naples, and then three different missions. There was uh, K-4 in Kosovo, the NATO mission in Iraq, and also enhanced forward presence. And that's changed a lot. At the time, there were four battle groups, and I compared Lithuania and Latvia in terms of better understanding how those battle groups operated. Now we're, we're looking at eight, and we're looking at scaling up from battle groups to, to brigade, and, and that work is uh, you know, all, already well on its way. So understandably so, you know, that operating environment has changed quite a bit since uh, Russia's full-scale conventional invasion of Ukraine. So uh, you have this incredible theory lit review in the introduction that gives readers, both who know and who don't know IR literature, a really clear understanding of the way scholars have thought about these intersexing issues. Uh, honestly, I did IR theory as a specialty in grad school, so I'm just pulling from you know decades old information. I found it so clear. This is, this is really the kind of book that could be assigned to talented undergraduate students, graduate students, a serious reader can get through this. If I can get through it as a political theorist, um, anyone can. Uh, and what I really appreciated about it is how it allowed me to then follow your argument throughout the book, but also see how you were building on these intersecting scholarships. So that, that was just so beautifully done. And it's actually a real gift to the reader. So thank you for that. Um, you mentioned that IR feminist theory was uh, uh had pointed out that how how these norms of women, peace, and security had been co-opted. That's the the word that you used, and, and the book focuses on a different term: uh, how norms were distorted. So, would you expand just a little bit on how these norms were distorted as NATO attempted to implement them, and and also what you mean by norm distortion? Well, thank you for the the kind words. I was really wanting to adopt a tone that would be more accessible, not only because I think it's important in general to talk about theory and try to have this conversation be devoid of, of jargon as much as possible, but also because this book was published as part of the Bridging the Gap series at Oxford University Press. So the intent behind the book was always to reach a broader audience than the scholarly audience. I wanted military practitioners to use the book, if the book could be discussed in the context of work done in military academies, you know, I would be delighted. So uh, I'm really happy that you, you said that because uh, I, this is part of the core objectives of, of the book. And I want to say this is the second book we've done in this Bridging the Gap series. Um, Catherine Harrell did her book, which is uh, Pathways to Incremental Civic Revolution in Egypt and Beyond. And I want to say that was another book, your book too, where I like open it and I'm just like, oh, am I going to be able 
to do this. But in fact, you're right. This series is in fact meant to bridge that kind of gap. And um, Catherine's book really changed the way I listened to NPR and, and talked to people and listened to people. And I find the same thing with your book. It's really clarified, you know, a lot for me. So uh, this is a great series and, um, uh, and I'm so glad this book uh, is in it. Anyway, tell us a little bit about this norm distortion and, and, and why it's so important. Yeah. So I, present this idea of norm distortion as the core mechanism to understand how norms take on a different meaning. And to me, at the core of this mechanism are are civil military interactions. So you have civilian decision makers who are proposing an articulation of the norms. And in this case, it's really norms to promote gender equality. And we talked about the emergence of those norms from Beijing to the UN Security Council resolutions 3025 and and the ones that followed. Uh, But then how norms are then implemented uh, in in the NATO context, it means that they're interpreted and and delegated to military stakeholders on the ground uh, very often. So when we think about then how these norms travel across the organization, we can explain why the militarization happens. So when we look to the the feminist argument about co-optation, there's this idea that maybe there's a a nefarious intent behind it. And I I wouldn't sit here and claim that there's no resistance at all within the NATO machine when it comes to women, peace and security norms, but there are other dynamics at play. And because military culture is so focused on operational effectiveness, when military stakeholders approach these norms on women, peace and security, they think right away, how is this relevant to the mission? And so through this process, as the norms make their way from the political decision-making bodies to the civilian bureaucracy, then over to the military structure at the strategic, operational, and tactical level, the norms get progressively militarized. And it's a function of these organizational processes and of military culture. So that's what I wanted to shed light on. And so norm distortion then helps explain how norms in the end and in the way that they're implemented take on a meaning that can be actually quite in tension with the original intent, which was the promotion of gender equality. When you have women, peace and security serving operational effectiveness, uh, and an example of this would be talking to more women on the ground to get better intel, you're serving the mission, but not necessarily gender equality. And why this is important is because women, peace and security norms and their focus on gender equality recognize that to build sustainable and peaceful outcomes, you really need to bake in gender equality concerns into everything that you do. Gender equality is necessary for security outcomes that are long lasting. So these are the longer term implications of of those norms and why we have to pay attention to how these norms get distorted in the process of implementation. Thank you. No, the, the, I, you know, as somebody who studies ideas, one of the things I found most interesting about this book is the way in which people sit down and they do agree to principles and they may mean it, but implementing norms, getting people to agree to principles is more than just, you know, sitting in a room and, and getting the wording right. And I really love the way the book uh, demonstrates that. 
Um, you mentioned earlier that you know the book series is really meant to uh, create conversations, and that you know you hope that the people who do implement these uh, policies are reading and listening and engaging. And I'm wondering, since the book has published, whether you've had those conversations either privately or publicly. And what kind of a reaction you're getting from the different audiences, the academic, the uh, the military, the internal to Canada and, you know, other places as well that may have a very different take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm going to brag a little here and say that the our chief of the defense staff, our, our Chaud in, in Canada, read the book and we had an opportunity to have an exchange on the book. And that was really important for me and in front of Lots of his senior colleagues, he said that this was uh, going to be a essential reading <laughs> for the Canadian Armed Forces. So to me, that was a, a huge success because it not only meant that the, the book was speaking to a military audience, uh, but it also signaled a broader commitment on the part of Canadian military leadership to women, peace and security. So important in this moment. Um, and... One thing that is not easy to read about, I think if you were a military uh, stakeholder, is this whole idea of norm distortion, which can appear to be quite critical of the way the military is carrying out the the women, peace and security agenda. And on that point, there have been some more difficult conversations. And I can appreciate that folks who've had the task of being a gender focal point or a gender advisor understand how hard it is to convey the importance of what they do, especially in the context of a mission. And so when they read the book, they can identify, of course, with some of the experiences that are discussed in the book. So I'll give an example here. When gender advisors speak to a commander because they're special advisors to the commander on on women, peace and security and on gender considerations in the operating environment, very often what they convey to me is they have about 30 seconds to make the case. And when you have only 30 seconds to make your case on why these considerations are important, the best way to get everyone's attention is to point to operational effectiveness. So while I criticize that in the book, I understand that very often there's no other choice than to right away focus the mind on why this matters for the mission or else you might be sidelined or dismissed altogether. So these friction points and I know they're there and I know it's a very difficult job to be a gender focal point or a gender advisor in a military environment. What makes it harder even to do those roles is that they're new and they haven't yet been fully socialized in military contexts. So in addition to having to convey the importance of this work to your colleagues, you have to explain why you're there in the first place. So it's a bit of a double bind for gender focal points and gender advisors, again, especially in operational uh, settings. So I'm very mindful of that. And uh, I still think it's important as academics and scholars to be able to convey that the hard truths of how things are implemented and how things need to improve. And so I do think that over time, some of these aspects will improve the socialization piece, maybe better training for gender advisors and gender focal points. Uh, And in a multinational context, also a bit more harmonization 
across the board because there are some uh, very uneven experiences with gender advisors and gender focal points when you compare all 31 now member states of, of NATO. And so you have some countries that who are, are champions of the women, peace and security agenda and that have deployed gender advisors for several years and other countries who don't have gender advisors at all within their national armed forces. So there's an unevenness there that makes the the role harder over time. I think those things will improve. Something else I think that's important to talk about, and that's part of my interactions, going back to your question with both civilian and military officials in the NATO context or in national context, is what we mean by really a feminist, embedding feminist principles in programming, uh, whether it's NATO policies, uh, NATO uh, operations or activities. And here really it's underscoring the importance of that longer term equation for regional stability and peace and how gender equality is so important to achieve that. And that again stands in contrast to the way that we think about military operations, about short-term gains in operational effectiveness. And when we think about military rotations, it's a six-month window. So it's sometimes challenging to think about those longer-term outcomes and why they're so important. And because they're longer-term outcomes, sometimes they're a little bit harder to measure in the short term. And when you're thinking through lines of efforts and how to measure the performance uh, across various outputs and outcomes, it's very difficult to track progress on these gender considerations in the operating environment. So that adds to the challenge. It adds to the complexity of the work, but it still really needs to be emphasized in conversations that we can't lose sight of these overarching goals and why these norms were uh, were taken up in the first place in the NATO context and beyond. What I really like about the tone of the book is that you balance this very clear critique with a lot of respect for what has to be done. So, you know, if I were military reading it, I think it's very constructive criticism and it's, 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 it's not, it's not lobbing, uh, you know, Molotov cocktails over a fence. It's much more trying to engage uh, with the military assuming the most generous approach and and urging it to do otherwise. And, and the second comment I would have is it's as I read the book, I thought, wow, we're asking NATO to do something that it's not clear most domestic systems, most businesses, most civic organizations have done either, which is to embed feminist norms into the fabric of their organizations, their goals, the way they communicate with each other. So this is this is really a kind of a tall ask, and it's interesting to watch you working through that in the book. This is a really complicated book, uh, and it's got these three huge case studies, Kosovo, the Baltics, and Iraq, and there's no way that we are going to summarize them in a short podcast. But I, I do want to give you a chance to give people an idea of what these case studies look like and perhaps pick something that you think really demonstrates the ways in which you know gender was either tried, uh, 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 feminist norms were, were tried to integrate and the, the issues that 
um, were faced on the ground or how they were distorted. So with like with with full rain to pick whatever you like, um, what, what are some examples or an example that you think would be helpful? No, oh, thank you for, for that question. And I'll, I'll just uh, circle back quickly to a, a comment that you made about the expectations we're putting on, on NATO and uh, some of the constraints or limitations that we can expect from an organization like NATO in terms of meeting these expectations. And I think about that a lot. And part of me thinks that military culture in many ways is ideally suited for change because there are such clear standard operating procedures and ways of doing things. And so you change those directives and you'll change the the behavior. And certainly in terms of the operational planning process and the types of new considerations now that are being taken into account, we've seen that. When you look at gender considerations being now part of the way that commanders are asked to report that's new and you change the directive and you change the behavior and you change the entire incentive structure by making those tweaks to establish uh, operational planning procedures and reporting procedures and so on. Uh, and where it becomes more difficult, and you alluded to that in, in your comment, is maybe in other aspects of implementing the Women, Peace and Security Agenda and increasing the representation and participation of women, which NATO does not own that process. Uh, it, it really defers to its member states. It's a, it's a national issue to recruit, retain, deploy. And NATO does have its own force generation process, but at the end of the day, it doesn't set targets or quotas on the percentage of women that member states need to deploy as part of operations. NATO is in control of its own hires, let's say in the international staff and the headquarters, so they can have a diversity strategy for that, but more limited in terms of how it's approached that question with its member states and their contributions to to missions and operations. That's definitely an area of improvement for NATO compared to, let's say, the UN. Uh, So all this to say, uh, there are There are some things that are uniquely and ideally suited uh, for change when it comes to to the military. Uh, There are lots of levers of control (laughs) to uh, incentivize certain behaviors or to tweak the way things are done. But when it comes to the recruitment, retention, deployment of women, there are uh, a lot of um, constraints when we look at NATO and the pursuit of that particular women, peace, and security goal. Let's go back to the cases then. And those three cases are very different. And Afghanistan, a case that's not featured in the book as a standalone case, but weaved in throughout because it's such an important reference point, is probably where I want to begin this, this discussion on how the argument manifests itself empirically. And Afghanistan is important, and the earlier phase of uh, the war in Iraq or multinational operations in Iraq, those two cases are really important because that's where the military first experimented with the model of female engagement teams, cultural support teams, and the core idea there 
was that the military needed to deploy more women in those contexts because of cultural and religious reasons on the ground. And so the military, when it had all male patrols, for instance, felt that it had a difficulty to access basically 50% of the population because it wasn't appropriate, let's say, for a male in uniform to be speaking with local women and trying to better understand the, the operating environment that way. So there was essentially a big part of the operating environment that remained closed to let's say, all male units. And so commanders recognized the need for women on the ground. And these programs were stood up, female engagement teams and cultural support teams for things like searches, for things like uh, entering homes and being respectful of cultural norms so that women in uniform would be talking to women and girls in that household. And... uh, Of course, population engagement too, when there are patrols and you're looking to engage locals, uh, it was seen as uh, more appropriate and more effective to have women in uniform talking to local women as opposed to men in uniform talking to local women. And so that emerged, and to me that really embodies, you know, that norm distortion logic of, you know, through those interactions very often uh, what you end up doing is increasing the the vulnerability and insecurity of the women that you publicly engage with in those settings. And it does improve data collection and intelligence gathering, but you lose sight of uh, those broader gender equality goals. On the other hand, more information um, can also translate into a better appreciation of the unique needs that women and girls might have in those contexts. And you know, that also needs to be acknowledged. But the proper guidance has to be in place for that to happen. And the best way to achieve that, in my view, is to have those considerations and that clear guidance baked into lines of effort, for instance. And that's where the NATO mission in Iraq stands out in the book. So one of the case studies that's focused on Iraq is for the NATO mission in Iraq, which is a mission that's focused on training, capacity building, and providing an advisory function to the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. It's a fairly new mission. It was started in 2018. And because it was such a new mission, and there had this, there had been this um, experience already at NATO when it comes to the Women, Peace, and Security agenda, those considerations were baked into the lines of effort. And that was really important for how that guidance materialized into action. What really helped also in that context in Iraq was a bit of a better civil military balance. There was a bigger uh, civilian footprint as part of the mission and the mission leadership. And that also helped broaden the types of gender considerations that were brought to the fore in terms of designing the program and interacting with Iraqi stakeholders. So I think it can happen with the institutional practices, but we've seen that more recently and we've seen an evolution and adaptation of how that's done. And in the book, I show that what's really crucial for this to to happen well and to minimize that norm distortion, which we probably can't eliminate entirely uh, when we're considering these very two different professional cultures between sort of the civilian side and the military side. But what we can do to minimize it is uh, to make sure that that NATO 
is in the lead when it comes to uh, the, the command structure. And that's where there were some limitations with enhanced forward presence, which we could come back to later. The framework nation concept there didn't facilitate this kind of harmonization of NATO practices across the board. You had four different battle groups with four different ways of working. In the NATO context, in K4, you have NATO clearly in the lead, and NATO can then impose its own requirements, like the deployment of a gender advisor and gender focal points, like monthly reports on how gender considerations are being taken into account, and can ask the commander to be accountable to these women, peace and security objectives. So that makes a big difference in not only whether or not something gets done, but also how. In the Kosovo case, you have a a longer, a more long-term mission. So K4 has been around for over 20 years. And so you do see changes over time in terms of how women, peace and security principles are being integrated into the mission. In a way, it's a it's a very important case because it has a lot of local population engagement through patrols, uh, where the goal is really to engage with every segment of the population and to take into account cultural, religious, and gender-based factors to be able to provide the best advice to the commander. There were some examples of trying to identify the unique needs of women, which would be a bit closer to uh, women, peace and security uh, norms uh, in their original form. And that that focus was on domestic violence in Kosovo. And there had been several several initiatives, especially when it comes to civil military cooperation activities, to address this pervasive problem of domestic violence in, in Kosovo. Beyond that, when it came to routine population engagement with men, boys, women, and girls, you were pretty much following that standard template of let's collect the information so that we have better early warning indicators on how violence might flash up and the mission might be better prepared to, to respond uh, you know, with lethal forces if necessary, although that hasn't been the case recently. So you do have uh, a bit of nuance there that's provided in the cases, and and for sure you have some aspects uh, within K4 where you know women, peace, and security is not a consideration at all, and that tends to vary from unit to unit. The population, uh, the, the units that are focused on on population engagement, like the liaison and monitoring teams, are a lot more aware and display a lot. Uh, a lot more knowledge on women, peace and security than, let's say, the uh, infantry battalions that are tasked with riot control or riot control training. And so you do see some differences across the mission. What I think is is really important then for everyone to be aware and everyone to consider it goes back to that clear guidance from NATO, but also trying to really embed it into the lines of, of effort the way that it's been done in, in NATO mission in Iraq, uh, a, a, a mission that's a bit younger, uh, and where those considerations were able to go into what I would call the, the mission design. So all books go to print, and then you just have to sort of the, wait for them to come out, and things happen in between. Has anything happened 
in NATO with uh, implementation, with uh, the sort of articulation of the norms since the book went to press that really impresses you or concerns you or, you know, that you flag? Thank you. Yes, um, a lot of big things happened since the book was ready and uh, I read the proofs uh, around the time where Russia invaded Ukraine. And that forced me to reconsider the way that I framed the chapter on enhanced forward presence. I had to basically reframe it as enhanced forward presence started as a four battle group mission and then acknowledge the fact that the invasion happened. And I think that's okay because, you know, this was a framework nation concept and NATO hasn't discarded the framework nation concept as a way of doing things. So there's some important lessons learned, but it becomes more of a historical case study now rather than a contemporary case study because the security environment has changed so much and the level of threat has changed so much and the scale of that, they used to call it an activity, but I think we call it an operation at this point, has changed so significantly. What I was afraid would happen in the process was that because we had a full-scale conventional military invasion of a country like Ukraine in Europe, that women, peace, and security would be relegated to the background. It would give a lot of power to the voices that would rather see this agenda disappear entirely from the NATO agenda. But in the more recent recent interviews that I've conducted, uh, what I've seen is that it's actually empowered gender advisors and gender focal points with a lot of really relevant examples of how Russia's conduct in terms of kidnapping Ukrainian children, in terms of the very different populations that we see in terms of uh, the the Ukrainians that have stayed to fight versus uh, the refugees and the internally displaced people, there's a fine-grained gender-based analysis to be done there in order to be able to provide the best help possible and the best support possible. Uh, the types of war crimes that have gone on, including uh, uh, sexual violence in that context, so you know, what NATO would call conflict-related sexual violence. And then uh you know, before those were examples that were difficult to point to for gender advisors and and, uh, gender focal points. And they were constantly asked, how is the women, peace and security agenda relevant for collective defense and deterrence with Russia in mind? But when you look at the policies, it's quite vague in terms of how women, peace and, and security applies to collective defense and deterrence. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they sort of filled that part out, basically, through their conduct in in that war and made women, peace and security even more salient in terms of addressing the three core pillars of of NATO, including collective defense and, and deterrence. Another aspect of NATO that's rather new, and it was on my radar as the book was going to print, but not fully fleshed out yet was NATO's policy on sexual exploitation and abuse. And so that is a recent policy and they've just rolled out new training on that. So there's a lot more work that's being done in this space. And whereas the bulk of NATO's experience with women, peace and security focused on talking and promoting 
uh, talking about and promoting uh, the increased participation of, of women at NATO and through NATO activities and mainstreaming a gender perspective in NATO activities, that issue of sexual exploitation and abuse or conflict-related sexual and gender-based violence wasn't as salient in NATO discussions. And now we're seeing that change and we're seeing an increased focus on, on those topics. So there's a bit of a better balance there in terms of areas of focus for NATO when it comes to women, peace and security norms. You've already partially answered this throughout the podcast uh, and especially in the last few minutes, but the concluding chapter is called, you know, is NATO a feminist alliance? Um, and there you, you know, you're, you're, you're really concerned. This is where the tone, I think, matters a great deal. It is such a constructive conclusion. It's not a got you, but it's a how would we move forward? So I'm wondering if you could just briefly say, like, is NATO a feminist alliance? And, and what are the things that you would like to see changed to make the women, peace and security norms implemented even more effectively? Mm -hmm. Great question. And, and I think that it's a bit of a provocative question to even say or articulate is NATO a feminist alliance? And at the end of the day, I think the answer is no, because so long as the individual member states of NATO aren't adopting or supportive of what we would call a feminist foreign policy or have really taken on board a national action plan on women, peace and security, we, we can't talk about NATO that way because so much of what NATO does is driven by the member states. Certainly the political decision-making is all driven by member states. And so that's very important. And there's still a lot of work to do on that front. A lot of member states have adopted feminist foreign policies. Some very new states have retracted from that. I'm thinking about Sweden, uh, you know, not quite a member yet, but was uh, the quintessential uh, states when it came to feminist foreign policies. Canada followed suit. You had some experiments with feminist foreign policies in France. Now it's really part of the conversation in Germany. So you have an opening towards that, but it's not far reaching enough across the member states to say that NATO is a feminist alliance. The Secretary General has said he is a feminist. There have been lots of champions within NATO, certainly across the permanent representatives or uh, you know, national ambassadors to NATO. So definitely a lot of momentum. I think having more Nordic states within NATO, that's another recent change, is likely to create a better balance between member states who are champions of the women, peace and security agenda and states that might actually work to undermine feminist foreign policies or the, the women, peace and security agenda more broadly. So I think that equation matters a great deal, uh, the member states and how supportive they might be or not of women, peace and security goals. So that's definitely an important consideration. Now within NATO in terms of leveraging established procedures, I think a lot can be done. That's well within the mandate of the current policy and, and directives. And it gets a little bit into the weeds in, in the book and I don't wanna use too much military jargon, but in the fourth generation process of NATO, that's how NATO is able to get troops and military personnel as part of its missions, it asks its member states to contribute 
military personnel and to deploy troops to its multinational operations. As part of that process, when there's an operational requirement for it, that's clearly stated by the commander and supported by the, the gender advisor, I think it would make sense to say, you know, it's very important to have women deployed on this operation because of X, Y, and Z. And then to make that a requirement for the member states, which NATO has shied away from doing. We've seen some examples of the female engagement teams and the cultural support teams. That's where there was a real operational requirement that was expressed to deploy more women. So the same thing could be done with NATO's force generation process as part of the combined joint statement of requirements. Also to talk about this capability, the importance of gender advisors, gender focal points, the need to deploy more women. But to be honest, every time I raised this as a possibility in interviews, I got a lot of resistance. I got some eye rolling and I got a lot of interesting parallels between NATO and, and the UN and the fact that NATO is distinct and, and not the UN and we're not going to go down that route. So I think still very early days, but we need to talk about it. And, and that's what's so striking about conversations on women, peace and security for someone who's worked on military operations, deterrence, burden sharing at NATO alliance politics. I was in the, the realist world of talking about guns and bombs, military capabilities, alliance politics. And switching over to talking about gender and women, peace and security, I noticed just how people put up walls and had emotional responses to the to the topic. And that was a really challenging part of the research, but also a challenging part of promoting the book because you do get some backlash from people who think that women, peace and security as a topic has no place at NATO, no place within the military. And it was really interesting to see that reaction to the agenda as a whole, to my work indirectly, in contrast to the type of work that I'd done before you know, on deterrence, military operations, and burden sharing, topics that are also politically contentious, but didn't elicit as much resistance and, and of a most aggressive response at times. Certainly on Twitter, it can be called aggressive. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey, and I think we have to be very strategic in, in how we approach these topics. As you said, it's, it's in the tone, uh, because sometimes it can be... Uh, not constructive. It can be a very antagonistic conversation and that leads us nowhere. So I think that when I think back on interactions I've been having with policymakers or NATO stakeholders, both on the civilian and military side of the house, it's to really listen to understand the internal dynamics of how things are, are being done and then understanding the entry points for potential improvement so that the, the policies that have been adopted by consensus are implemented in the best way possible ultimately and to try to dispel some of the myths and stereotypes that come with maybe using feminism and military in the same sentence <laughs> or you know saying something like women peace and security agenda um, some people interpreted this as being some kind of employment equity program within NATO so I think clarifying some of that language, really breaking it down and reassuring people that women, peace and security is really about, you know, long-term 
peace and stability, which ultimately everyone wants, right? So um, that's what I would say in terms of the, the, the last chapter. It was the most challenging chapter to write in many ways because you are proposing some recommendations and it's a very fastly evolving context, first of all. You want to be realistic in terms of how you're articulating these recommendations because, you know, you're also addressing that that policy and military audience and you want the advice to be useful. And then I was also thinking about the feminist international relations audience because I know that the space I'm working with goes against a lot of the, the principles and values that underpin the feminist project and the feminist international relations argument. So at the end of the day, I thought, I'm going to please no one. I'm not going to please the experts on military affairs because they're going to wonder why when peace and security agenda has its place in a NATO or a military context or might not be familiar with the agenda to begin with and so not interested. And it's not going to please the scholars in feminist international relations either because I'm asking questions like, is NATO a feminist alliance? So that was my my fear as I was writing that you know last chapter, that moment of self-doubt. Once the book came out, however, I think that the, the book was able to, to bridge those two communities in, in a way that I'm happy with. Uh, and certainly the engagements that I've had both in academic circles and, and policy circles and military circles have confirmed this. Now I'm taking this show on the road, so we'll see how things are in, in Europe. I'm going to Paris and Brussels to do some some book launches there, so we'll see how it's received. Uh, and I'm doing one in, in the U.S. Uh, with, with Rand very soon as well. So as I encounter new non-Canadian audiences, uh, we'll see if, if the feedback is consistent with my experiences thus far or, or quite different. Well, I think sometimes it is... Uh a sign of a successful book when nobody is completely happy. And it's probably very, very important for somebody who comes from that deterrence background and who can talk that language to be the translator. So, and and that will make uh, the IR feminists not completely pleased and it will make the military people not completely pleased, but I think actually that's the brilliance of this book. And it is really reflective of what this series is trying to do. And it is what everybody else needs. And perhaps not all books should be written for either the academic specialists or for military operations, but for the sort of wider policy, NGO, public, um, and as you have gotten many military officers who are willing to listen and to be, you know, open to that conversation. And I think the book really does a great job. Thank you so much um, for coming to New Books in Political Science today. Um, and for people in other places, we'll look forward to being able to engage with you in Brussels or Paris, um, or I don't know if it's DC where you're going to talk to Rand. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan. I really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for reading the book. Oh, it was my pleasure. I've been talking with Stephanie von Halatke. Her book is Deploying Feminism, the Role of Gender in NATO Military Operations, published by Oxford University Press in 2022.